we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Um, as you're turning there, let me give you a little promo for what's coming in the coming weeks. Um, starting next week, we're going to start a new series uh, um, that is uh, the, called The Gospel at Stake, and it's walking through the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is uh, filled with uh, really intense almost violent, not even almost, definitely violent language. Um, Paul wrote it, and Paul's always writing about, like, in a very in-your-face style, but, but never more uh, apparent than in the book of Galatians. So um, it'll be a, a good, good series for us to, to walk through, and it's uh, contending for the gospel, uh, which is a, a big deal for us here at North Church. So um, we start that next week, so come next week, and, and uh walk with us through the book of Galatians, probably my, one of my favorite books in, in the Bible. Uh, so today we are, we're talking about uh, the, a, a tension that exists, a tension between being distinct or holy or called out or different and being engaged, like connecting with culture and, and being engaged in culture and what it means to be distinct and engaged at the, at the same time. Um, and I want to bring out a couple of points for that. The, the first one, uh, a guy named Darren Patrick, the pastor of The Journey, says this about being distinct and engaged. Uh, the church is vital for that. He says this, the church is a place of interdependence, not independence. You know, let that sit on your brain for a second because this kind of paints where we're going to go today. Um, it's a place where people suffer together, counsel each other about hard needs, challenge each other, rebuke each other, encourage each other. That is the church. So as we embark on this study this morning on what it means to be distinct and engaged, I bring this quote in front of us to understand that the church is a vital tool to get us there. And it, it's, it's a, being distinct and engaged is difficult personally, and it's difficult uh, corporately as a church. And so God has given us a tool called the church to help us to live out this, in this tension of being distinct and engaged. And looking into this, this quote and looking into to what we're saying here, I, I want you to understand, I want you to see yourself as not just important to the church, but vital to the church. When you are not connected in a particular, and I, when I say church, I'm not talking about North Church. I'm talking about the church global. You are not just important, but vital to the church. When you are not connected in a church, not only are you not living full in in what God intended you, you're also robbing a particular church of what you bring to the party. And if the church is all these things, a place of interdependence and not independence, in a place where people suffer together and, and challenge each other with hard needs and, and you find uh, where you can be safe to rebuke and be rebuked. And if a church is all of those things and you're not connecting with it, the church is not all that it can be. Uh, so I want us to look mostly this morning at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at 1 and 2 and some other places in Scripture. But, but this is Peter giving overarching instructions to the church on how to be distinct and engaged. And Peter's writing to the first century church, like the, the, the infant baby church, about this tension that he wants them to live in. Uh, but it's not just the attention that Peter has called us to, but also that Christ himself 
has called us to. Um, but, but let's first look at, at this man, Peter, as his successes and his failures. So um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 is where I want to start to, to learn about who this, this guy Peter is. It says there in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to reiterate something I say a lot as I'm teaching. We see Christ. It's not a last name. My last name is Maxidon. Jesus' last name is not Christ. Christ is a term for him. It means Messiah, the chosen one, the one that God sent to come and save the world. So when Peter calls him Christ, he's not calling him by his name. He's saying, you are the one that God has promised forever to come and save and redeem and reconcile the world to himself. Jesus' response to him is, is, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is the verse that I want to land on. This, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus says, on you I'm going to build my church. You're going to be the, I'm the foundation, but I'm going to begin to build it upon you. You're going to lead out, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is a, a big deal. Christ is leaving He's come to the earth and lived this perfect life and is going to die soon. And, and he's saying, I'm going to build my, my church. I'm going to leave this redemptive story with you to go and spread to the world. But Peter is a complete and thorough failure. He's the one who denied Christ three times right after. A lot of times I, I talk about this, and you've probably heard people talk about this, that, that Peter was the guy that they built the church upon. But Peter was also the guy that denied Jesus three times. But I, I want to say this. Uh, some of you guys, Wednesday night, were at our covenant celebration. And it was, it was one of the sweetest times of, at, at North Church that I remember. I, Dave kind of visioned for us to, to do this and, and to re-sign the covenants for our membership and to, to install a couple of deacons and install an elder. It was just a really good time of worship, a really good time of fellowship. We ate together. It was, it was, fan- it was sweet. And... I go home after it's over, and everybody is going to bed, and, and, and I'm sitting down, and, and I sit in front of the computer, and, and I, I go to, uh, to Yahoo, and there's this, this image in front of me that would typically make me stumble and, and make me spend time looking at, at this person that was in front of the screen. But because of this sweet time that I just experienced, it was very easy to just turn and, and X out of of, of Mozilla at that point, all right? And, and I say that because I just had a sweet, intimate time with Christ and with my church family. And temptation was easy to run away from. Christ had just had what I can imagine the sweetest time that Peter would ever experience in the upper room with his church family, with the 12 apostles, and Christ has just said to them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And they just partook of, of the very first communion service. I can't, I, as sweet as our covenant celebration was, I can't imagine it being sweeter than, than being able to be in that room where Christ breaks the bread 
and he passes it around. He takes the, the cup and he passes it around. And the sweetness of that moment, I can't imagine the nearness to Jesus that Peter felt. Yet a few hours later, he is denying even knowing Christ in front of a 13-year-old girl. And that is fascinating to me that this guy who is so easily tripped up is the guy that Jesus is going to lead his church to. The redemptive plan of God for all, all of mankind, all of, all of mankind was to, to be led by this guy after Christ leaves, this guy that is so quick to stumble and so quick to fall. And I, I want to see, I want to bring out this understanding of grace. So many times we, we hold grace down to just the thing that saves us, but grace is the thing that provides us with what we need to continue on and do what Christ has called us to do. More specifically for Peter, grace here in the midst of a failure gives Peter the courage and, and strength to go and do and be what God has called him to be as a church. I want to say this. Failure for Peter follows the most intimate time with Christ ever. Failure is the thing that immediately follows him. But he still is used by God soon after, and that is grace. And so as we walk through some stuff that's going to be really difficult to live in this tension between being distinct and being engaged, understand that same grace that allowed Peter, after he failed, after this intimate time with Christ, to go and lead God's church is the same grace that you and I have to be able to connect with so here, I, w- I want to say this. Do not say you cannot do the things that Scripture is calling you to here. I'm going to call you, and more importantly, Christ is going to call you to some really hard, hard things. There's nothing that's stopping you from being who Christ is calling you to be. Um, I, I don't normally do this, but, but I, I think it's really important for us. I want you to, to say something with me, all right? We did this a few weeks ago for the first time. We're going to do it again. I want you to say, I can do what Scripture is calling me to do. I can do what Scripture is calling me to do. I want you to, to think through that. Because, and, and I bring out the failure of Peter and the failure of Peter immediately following this intimate moment with Christ to put in front of us that even if we are in the midst of failure before we came here this morning, God gives grace to us, something you don't earn and you don't deserve, to be able to go and do. Be courage. Have courage in you. I don't say encourage because we can get confused. Allow this to pour courage into you, to go and be who Christ is calling you to be. You can do what Scripture is calling you to do. So, let's look to, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go through uh, the first chapter and a half pretty quickly just summarize a few verses here so that we can get to the, the heart of what I want to say in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. So as we, we walk through these verses, understand this. This is you. When Christ is talking about we and I and us, he's including each of us in this room. All right? So this is our identity. It's vital for us individually and vital for us as a church to fully grasp what this is teaching us here as the church. Peter talking to the first century church, this is us listening to what he's saying, the 21st century church. First Peter chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 10, is summarized with this statement. The Christian life will bring suffering. If you're going to live in this tension of being distinct and engaged, you will suffer, period. But that suffering cannot touch our inheritance, and it brings stronger, more purified, more intimate relationship with Jesus, and it brings glory to him. So this suffering has a design and a purpose. Verse 3 tells us that according to the mercy of Christ, we have a living hope. It's a hope that has organic qualities. It's changing. It's growing. There's, it's being broadened. It's, it's heightened. It's a living hope. Verse 4 tells us that we have an inheritance that is in heaven and is imperishable. This is the verse that just drives my heart so much. We have an inheritance. No matter what happens in our successes or our failures or any of that stuff on this planet, our inheritance is imperishable, unfading, unspoiled. It can't be touched. Own that. Your identity is being spoken to you by Peter here. Your inheritance cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade. Verses 5 through 7 talk about suffering in this world. It promises but says there is a design and a purpose in it. There is a design and a purpose in suffering. That purpose is the stronger, purified, more intimate relationship with Christ. Suffering, when you look at it properly, from what Peter is bringing the first century church to and what he's bringing us to, when looked at suffering properly, it has to bring encouragement, not discouragement. Yes, you're doing, when you suffer, it's like Jesus saying, yes, you're doing it right. When you're not suffering, maybe not. Take a look at it. Step back. Look. Think. Suffering is meant to give courage, not take it away. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25 is summarized with this statement. Be holy. Just stop there for a second. We can, in a, in a church of, of our vision and direction and just who we are, we can skate past this. We live in, in freedom. But I, I, I want to stop and just look at, at that statement. Be holy. And this is the, the first half of the tension. Be holy. And again... It's nothing that we can do of ourselves. It's a grace that God has given to us. In the midst of Peter's failures, he received the grace that was needed to be holy, to live in this tension, which is what the, the second part of, of this summary statement says. Do right because your eternity was bought by the perfectly holy and perfectly right Jesus. The clothes that we wear before God are the clothes of Christ. Be holy as Christ was holy. We wear his righteousness. Do right because your eternity was bought by the perfectly holy and right Christ. And he is calling you to be holy and do right. Allow that to serve as your motivation to go and to be holy. Allow that to go and serve as your, your strength to be holy. Verse 13 says, Look, conf look with confident expectation, that word hope, for the purified intimacy that is coming and is happening. That means we experience hope, 
But at the same time, we're going to get more hope and a greater hope and a living hope later as we continue on being holy, as we continue on seeking Christ. We have a purified intimacy that is coming and is currently being enjoyed by us. Verses 14 through 18 talk about being transformed by the work of Christ so that your flesh can be defeated. The work of Christ is the thing that allows you to defeat your flesh. Own that. This, again, speaking your identity to you. Here's the tool that you have to be holy, the work of Christ. That's what verses 14 and 18 talk about. Verse 18 says that you were ransomed. I want to back away from the familiarity with that and just think about what it means to be ransomed, what it means to be trapped or kidnapped. And a ransom is paying for a price. We are trapped by our flesh, and the work of Christ ransoms us to be free. Imagine, when, when I think of this, I think of Silence of the Lambs and the girl at the bottom of that well, and she was trapped. And that's an intense awful scene. If you guys go back and, and think about the, the, just the plan of the, I don't remember what the guy's name was, the, the, the bad guy in Silence of the Lambs, the plan of this guy was, was vile. And she was trapped. Put yourself down there in Christ and his finished work is a thing that frees us and ransoms us from that hell and that awful thing that that's, we're headed towards. And that is what allows us to run and walk in our freedom and allows us to defeat our flesh and be who Christ has called us to be. Left alone, that poor girl at the bottom of that well is trapped. She can't move. She can't, she can't defeat the enemy. Christ has ransomed us, brought us up from that well to allow us to walk in freedom and choose him. That's a deep, deep beauty. And understand, this is your identity. Take a deep breath of that. This is your identity. Verse 19 says, the perfect blood of Christ is the payment. When we take communion later, I want you to to picture that ransom. I want you to, to picture yourself trapped and you partake of the bread and the blood of Christ. And breathe it in deep. Verse 22, part of the obedience is to love one another. We'll talk about that later. That's what it means to be engaged. Verse 23 says the life or seed that we are given is imperishable. It's secure. It's firm. It can't be touched. Own your identity. 1 Peter chapter 2, the first 12 verses are summarized with this statement. You are the church. You are the church. Whether you're just visiting with us, you're going to go back home next week or tomorrow, or you're, you're visiting us to check us out, or you're a member of this place, whatever. You are the church. And the church is like a brick house where each stone is dependent upon each other. Turn around and look at the, the back wall, the white wall. Everybody turn around and look at it. If you take any one of those bricks out, that wall is going to suffer. We could take even the highest brick out, and that wall is going to suffer. You take a bottom brick out, that wall is going to suffer. It's going to crumble. The ones above it are dependent upon it, and the ones below it, you're standing firm on. The church is like a brick house. This is the analogy that Peter is using in the first 12 verses of chapter 2. 
The church is like a brick house where each stone is dependent upon it, and Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone, the thing that can't be moved, the thing that gives us our direction and our strength. He also says, be different, but be engaged with the world you find yourself in and look to God. Verse 5 says, you are a living stone. Verse 7 says, Jesus is the cornerstone or the foundation. I want to spend the the last few moments uh, this morning thinking about this understanding with verses 11 and 12 and thinking about this understanding of what it means to be distinct and engaged and talk about this, this tension that we live in and talk about our mission and our direction and our purpose that God has given to us. Um, there's a, I've, I've quoted Darren Patrick earlier, and I want to show a little clip from a sermon that he gave that, uh, that illustrates this well. So hit that if you could, Trav. And when you are a community on mission, you know what happens? Your intention your intention, when you try to get into the, and it's not, it's not a problem you can be solved. It's a, ten, it's a tension that you have to be ma- managed. And ever since the beginning of time, God's people have always been in tension between the world and the church. You got to live in the world, but you are the church. And what we do is we want to resolve tension. We don't like tension. We hate it when like, songs or stories or movies leave us in tension and they don't resolve it. Did you hate that? Have you seen Inception? You got to re-see it. Is it a dream and a dream or a dream and a dream and a dream? But what, I mean, what, what, you, there's no reason. If you're going to like feel good and like, I just want to relax, don't go see that movie. Because it's going to leave you. Confl- we don't like that. We don't like that. We want to resolve. We, want, we, 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 we don't like that dissonance that happens. And, and we've got enough tension, frankly, some of us. We've got bad marriages to contend with. We've got bad bosses to contend with. We've got, uh, you know, health situations. You think, well, Darren, it's not good news for you to tell me your goal in this sermon is to put me in tension. Sorry. But that's where the Scripture teaches. And here's, here's what I think. When we're in the right kind of tension, all those other tensions that we feel tend, tend to take a proper perspective. We have a proper perspective on them, and they don't become as big a deal as they are now. And they are a big deal because we're in the wrong tensions. Here's where God wants us, right in the middle. Distinct, but engaged. Now, we either choose for one or the other. We either want to be totally distinct or totally engaged. Let me give you some terms to help us. You either fall into the ditch to the right or to the left. A lot of us choose this to resolve tension that God wants us in. We become fundamentalists. And let me define my terms. A fundamentalist is someone who separates from culture, someone who um, sees people on the outside as enemies of the church. It's us versus them. We're good guys, they're bad guys. Very high standards to join this group, very exclusive. Uh, they, kind of had, they, they kind of are able to, see, both of these groups divide the world up. They go, we're right, you're wrong. Right? We are pure, you're defiled. We have insight, you're deceived. And then on the other side of the ditch, the left side, you have a relativist. And that basically, you're the same as culture when you're relative. People on the outside are friends. Us is them. Very low standards to join. Anyone can join. And, and they also divide the world. They go, we're the rational ones. Those who don't think like us are irrational. We're progressive. You're regressive. We're tolerant. We're open-minded. You are narrow-minded. You are judgmental. 
Now, it is so much easier to be one or the other. It really is. You, you, you solve a lot of tensions because you're able to just kind of put everybody in these categories. But here's what, here's what happens when you choose one side or the other. Two things. You lose spiritual power and you lose cultural influence. And the reason why you lose it is you avoid suffering. And suffering is the key to spiritual power and cultural influence. Uh, <clears throat> I want to want to take a look at the, the the two terms that he kind of brought out there: fundamentalist and a relativist, and and think through that each of us we probably you, you're probably thinking to yourself you you can lean one direction or or the other, but I think that we we all have a bit of a fundamentalist in us, and we all have a a, a bit of a of a relativist in us, and I want to want to think through. What that, what that looks like for us and, and understand that when we are, are fully distinct and not engaged, that's when we can become a relativist. That's when we can become this holy huddle and, and disregarding everything and be a complete Christian subculture. And when we are fully engaged without being distinct, we, that's when we become this relativist. And, and I think we can all end up in both of these places at different times. We can swerve too far to the right, we can swerve too far to the left, and both times we wind up in the ditch. And this understanding of, of tension being pulled in both directions, that's what we're talking about when, it, when I say tension, being pulled in both directions. If we're not being pulled in both directions, we're being pulled in one direction. That's going li- to swerve us off to the other side, and it's going to cause us to be right in the middle and take fire from both sides. Those who are fundamentalists are going to shoot arrows at us. And those who are relativists are going to shoot arrows at us and say we're getting it wrong. But ultimately, we are promised suffering when we live in these tensions. Uh, and I want to say this too, to, to think through this, these tensions, this fundamentalist and this relativist, is both sides ultimately lack humility. If you are lacking in humility, if you are unwilling to be taught, unwilling to learn, unwilling to, to, to be changed and to be moved and be shaped, then chances are you're a little arrogant and you're, you're being pulled to one side or the other. Live in tension. I want to close with uh, some precise discussion on 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are, Peter calls you a sojourner and an alien. That's someone who is in exile. You're a stranger in a strange world. He's calling us to take stands for truth. Be counterculture. Be different to what's happening here. You are a sojourner and an alien. You're not supposed to be here. This isn't, we're living in a tension because we aren't, the, the world is broken. It doesn't work. And we're pulled in both directions. Uh, for Peter, Here are the things that he was calling people to be in the first century church and see if it sounds familiar to you. He was calling them 
to be a stranger and alien to take a stand against the killing of babies. Do you know in the first century church, the females were held in such contempt that if a mother had a little girl, they didn't want it. They would leave it outside their door. And the early church was, one of their ministries was to go and pick up these children and raise them. The killing of infants. Sound familiar? Peter's calling them to take a stand. For us to be distinct, take a stand. Sex outside of marriage. Peter's calling the, the church to be different in this way. To, there, there is worship of gods which calls you to go and have sex in temple with people who are not your spouse. Peter is calling people to, to stop having sex outside of marriage. Dishonesty where you work. Peter's calling people to, to be distinct in this way and to take a stand that Christ is the only way. Do you know that the Christians in the first century were called atheists? Because they believed in one God and not all the gods. So the people that believed in all the gods would say, you are an atheist, you are irreligious. Go away from me. Taking a stand that Christ is the only way got you ostracized in the first century church. Sound familiar? This is what Peter is saying when he's calling us to be distinct. In Jeremiah, I want to read a verse from Jeremiah in a second. God's people are in exile and there's wickedness all around them. Some people within God's people that that Jeremiah has been called to, to be the prophet to are saying we need to live completely distinct. We need to to get away from everybody. Others within this camp are saying we need to fully assimilate, be them, take on their culture, take everything about them and rid ourselves even of our religion for our, what they perceive to be their, their ultimate welfare, to stand in front of these people and, and be in exile and be accepted by them. So they're in attention from a religious tension saying, let's be completely distinct. No, let's fully and completely 100% assimilate, be distinct and engaged. Jeremiah, the true prophet of God, says this. And just before verse 7 of, of chapter 29, he says, I want you to plant gardens. I want you to take wives. I want you to be part of the culture. Build it out. I want you to engage. But then he says, be holy and distinct. Jeremiah 29.7 says, ultimately gives them a mission within their being exiled. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And this word welfare is the same language that's being used when Christ is talking about bringing the kingdom. But seek the kingdom of of the city. Seek to build the kingdom of God in the city is what Jeremiah, the prophet of God, prophet just means the one who's speaking the words of God. So the words of God to these people in exile, just like we are in exile, is build out my kingdom where you are. Hear that. The prophet of God says, build out my kingdom where you are, where I have placed you, where you are to be distinct but be engaged, where everything is weird and strange. You are a stranger in a strange land. You are in exile. He says, seek the kingdom. Seek to build out my kingdom in that city. The prophet of God, where I have sent you into exile. 
hear that. God has placed you where you are with a purpose. There's design in it. Where you work, where you live, the family that you're in, all of those things, your neighbors, your family, your cousins, your sister, your brother, your parents, your spouses, your ex-spouses, all of that. There's design in it. God has placed you in this place where it feels like exile because we are strangers and aliens in this foreign land. And what are you supposed to be doing when you're there? Build out the kingdom of God. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed for the city you live in? When was the last time you prayed for Florissant? When was the last time you prayed for St. Louis County? When was the last time you prayed for this country? Pray to the Lord on the behalf of where you are and for its welfare. There's our word again. Pray that the kingdom of God will be built out in our midst. And you will find your welfare. Do you, do you see the way to, to experience the kingdom? is to build the kingdom. Engage culture while being fully and completely distinct. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Engage them, but be distinct while you are engaging them. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, when you stand up and take a stand and say, no, stop, that is, God does not want that for us. Christ is the only way. When you take the stands that we were talking about before, they will see your good deeds. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, when you take your stand, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Christ himself talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he lays out the Beatitudes, which are all about knocking us down. Be humble, be broken, be different, so that I can rise you up. That's the Beatitudes. He says this. Verse 5, 16 of chapter Matthew, of the book of Matthew. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the call. This is why we are distinct and engaged. Because Christ is calling us to and because it directs attention to God. Just a little bit ago, at the beginning of the message, I had everybody turn around and look at that brick wall. That is what it means to, to bring glory to God. Hey, everybody, look back there. When we are distinct and engaged, our lives are saying, hey, everybody, look at God. This is a call for us to be distinct and engaged. It's our mission. Ultimately, the end of the story is found in this statement. You are sinful and you are dysfunctional. You are sinful and you are dysfunctional. But God says, I'm going to use you to engage this world with my story. You are sinful and you are dysfunctional. But God says, just like he said to Peter, I'm going to use you to engage this culture with my story. And when we live in that tension, glory is brought to God. 
But it is a tension where we get pulled and it hurts and it's hard. I want to bring before us the, the, the quote that we had to begin with to understand that this tension that we're called to live in, we're not called to live in alone. It's the purpose of the church, one of the purpose of the church. Having said all that I just said, re-understand this. The church is a place of interdependence, not independence. It's a place where people suffer together. It's a place where people counsel each other about hard needs. It's a place where people challenge each other, rebuke each other, encourage each other. That is the church. I want to say this. If you are engaged somewhere, people come to this church, but you're not fully engaged unless you're involved in community. If that's you, here I am rebuking you, saying you better get there because you're not living the, the purpose and direction that God intended the church to be for you. Go be engaged somewhere. Go be connected somewhere. This is God's purpose because he's calling us to live in attention that we can't do by ourselves. He's called us to live in community. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for the beauty of of what Peter has spoken to our hearts this morning, God. I pray that when suffering comes, we would see it as courage being given to us and not courage being taken away from us. Father, I pray for every one of us, God, to be made aware of where we are a fundamentalist and be made aware of where we are relativist. And God, straighten our path. God, we beg of you to give us grace. The grace you gave Peter in the midst of his failure to to rise and to go and lead your church in the first century. Give us that grace, Father. We beg of you to allow us to walk on this planet filled with grace and filled with courage to live in this tension, God. And Father, may we step back and live lives of humility that point to you and give glory to you. God, may we be holy and distinct. And may we be engaged. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his perfect name. Amen.